Hello and welcome to the Refs Need Love To podcast, a show that gives you a real, raw, and behind-the-scenes view of one of the hardest jobs on the pitch, the referee. I'm your host, David Gerson, a grassroots referee with over nine years of experience and over 1,200 matches under my belt. You can find me at refsneedlove2.com, on TikTok, and on Instagram. This month, we're going to talk about the mythical considerations. I say mythical because they aren't always in the official laws of the game, but they're critical for referees everywhere. Let's jump right in. I'm not sure when I first heard about considerations, but it probably wasn't until I was about three years into my soccer referee journey. I certainly didn't hear about them when I was a player in my childhood and I played into my teens. I didn't hear about them when I was a coach. I coached U6, U8, U10, even into U12. I didn't even hear about them for my first two years as a certified U.S. soccer referee. Why not? I mean, why not? And, and if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, considerations are what referees should be using when they make a determination between a careless, reckless, or using executive force or brutality red card type of foul. But when you hear a professional, such as like a Christina Uncle on CBS, or you watch the MLS or pro referee instant replay discuss considerations of a handball or a dog so, or why something, a particular tackle is a red card versus a yellow card, you know what I mean? They talk about the considerations. So what are these things? Well, sometimes, sometimes the considerations are indeed partially listed in the laws of the game. Okay? I say partially because not everything. Let's take handball for instance. We know from the laws where on the arm contact should be considered for a potential handball offense, right? The graphic is there in the laws of the game. It's from below the armpit, okay? So if a ball hits anywhere kind of below the armpit, if you draw that line from the armpit across the arm, so shoulder is okay, but below the armpit, if the ball hits anywhere below that, then it could be considered for offside offense, but not every hit of the hand is an offside offense, as we know, right? There are things we need to consider. Does the player move their arm towards the ball, like try to intercept the ball with their hand? Does their arm, is their arm in a natural position based on their body movement, or is their arm in an unnatural position? Well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> For real. What is a natural position based on their body movement? Because we have certainly seen numerous times where someone is jumping up and they use their arms to jump up, you know, for momentum and their hands are out in front of them as they pull their arms up for momentum as a normal person would jump and they're called for a handball offense. Additionally, what is a natural position? Uh, you know, sometimes, again, we've seen people jump and it's considered to be a natural position. Sometimes people are like, oh, you need to have your arms behind your back. But I've seen it where someone's actually had their arms behind the back. The ball hits their elbow and they're still called for a handball offense. So no one actually tells us what 
a natural position is based on their body movement. No one tells us what an unnatural position looks like. They do say that in in the guidance, and we'll get into this in a little bit, there's some guidance that says, well, if your arm is above your head, well, then you're putting yourself you know, at risk for a handball offense, but it doesn't say it's always a handball offense. There's just so many things that are left up for interpretation. Additionally, they don't tell you that a ball in the laws of the game. If you look at the today's current laws, they do not tell you that a ball that comes off the defender's thigh to their hand is not a handball. But you can look into the IFAB Q&A guidance and there are hundreds of entries in the IFAB guidance sections, like a Q&A section, if you will, like a, a FAQ or frequently asked questions. But how many people have ever looked into the IFAB guidance, let alone referees? I mean, until I had started this channel and platform, I didn't even have the IFAB laws of the game downloaded on my phone. And I was a ref for like five and a half years, six years before I started this channel. So I downloaded the app so I could check the laws before I posted things. I didn't even know that the IFAB guidance or Q&A area even existed. And I am a referee nerd, man, like hardcore nerd. So you can imagine that most people, and I'm talking like 99.99% of people on earth have never looked up the IFAB guidance section of the laws or the Q&A. So yeah, does is it a handball if it hits off of someone's leg into their arm? I don't know. What are the other considerations? Was their arm in a natural position at the time that it hit? <laughs> you know, that it hit? Oh my gosh. I mean, let's look here. Let's talk about a couple more of these things. How about offside? Okay. Offside. This year, IFAB added a ton of guidance and considerations for what is deemed a deliberate play by a defender. What they don't say in the laws is exactly what each of those considerations look like. They don't describe them. They say that a ball on the ground is easier to play than one that's in the air. Okay. That, that's a good one. Um, that the, the defender should have uh, time to be able to control a pass or clear the ball. Okay. But what does that look like? To find out what those things look like, you then need to seek out the videos on an IFAB website, not the actual like inside the laws of the game, there's no links there that show clips to each one of those things. You got to seek out these videos and these videos are painful to watch. I mean, they're, they're long clips there. There's no voiceover to them. They just show, um, some examples of what is offside and what is not offside or what might be a, a deliberate play or not a deliberate play, but they don't really break it down and show you exactly what it is that we need to be considering when we're defining you know, certain considerations for a deliberate play. And I am going to guess that less than 1% of referees have ever watched those videos and less than 0.000001% of the general public, even, you know, spectators, players, coaches, commentators who are surrounded by the beautiful game, love the game, have any idea that those new laws exist or how to apply them. All right. 
Now let's get into the most controversial, the stuff that drives people nuts, fouls. There's nothing, nothing in the laws of the game that tells us what kind of contact is legal and what should be a foul. Nothing. Nothing. We all understand that a trip, if someone trips someone, okay, someone who's dribbling the ball, I should say, <laughs> and that they trip someone, I, I guess I guess trips can happen and, and it might not be a foul. Maybe it's just incidental contact off the ball and they just, you know, someone trips over someone's leg. But generally, if someone trips someone, you know, that's a foul. But what about a push? What about a charge that's shoulder to shoulder? How do we determine what contact should be accepted and what should be whistled for an infraction? At the next level, when does something go from you know just a foul to when we should show a yellow card versus a red card? Now, maybe you're a nerd like me and you've read the laws of the game um, and you've studied and you've heard the words careless, reckless, and excessive force before. But how do we know the difference? And and listen, I I do want to say, I say nerd in the most loving way possible. I mean, I think, you know, maybe 20 years ago, nerd might have been a negative word. I think these days, you know, nerd is like almost like a, a sign of respect. Like this is someone who has studied a certain subject a great deal and is very knowledgeable. Um, not that I'm I'm cool by any means, um, but I think my deep love of the laws of the game and the intricacies of the laws of the game help me be a better referee. And I take that knowledge and I try and educate other people as well. So uh, hopefully that's a little explanation. You know, if you're a nerd, listen, I love you. All good. You know, nothing but respect. All right, so careless, reckless, excessive force. How do we know the difference? Let's say we have a sliding tackle or a challenge. When does it become serious foul play and a red card? When does it become unsporting behavior and, you know, a reckless challenge? So if you dial in to a broadcast and you get Christina Uncle on the broadcast who knows what she's doing and has been on the FIFA panel and, you know, has refed NWSL and, you know, international matches. I mean, just outrageously accomplished. And by the way, let me give a little shout out to Christina uncle here. I mean, MBA law degree is now president of a soccer club, um, is a commentator sportscaster. And by the way, like really cool and down to earth, you know, mom, I think she's got like a 10 or 11 year old little girl, you know, her husband, Ted, has also reached the pinnacle of the game as well and was on the FIFA panel and MLS F referee. I mean, you talk about impressive people. Dude, that is an impressive family and impressive people right there. Okay, but when you listen to Christina Uncle and she talks about a foul and she's determining, is it a yellow card? Is it a red card? She's going to start talking about, well, what's the speed and the force of the challenge? Did they leave their feet? Was the offender out of control? What part of the body did they use to make contact with the opponent? Was it their studs or did they hit them with their top of their foot? Was their leg outstretched, you know, in a locked position or was it curled 
You know, when, when they, when they stamped on down, did they use all their force or was it just, you know, grazing, you know, negligible, uh, impact or contact. They use their full weight into the challenge. They'll talk about, well, what part of the body did they make contact with the opponent? Did they hit them on the foot, you know, really low or did it hit above the ankle? Maybe onto the shin or gosh forbid, like the knee or something like that. Was the tackle from the front or was it from the side or from the back? Now I'm asking you all these questions that are indeed considerations for how referees make those determinations. But where are those things? Where is that written at all? I mean, I've done some Googling and you find some things on uh, one or two state referee sites here and there. Tennessee does a good job of sharing this kind of stuff from U.S. soccer. But it's not on the U.S. soccer page. Can't find it. Not on the Georgia page where I live. Can't find it. You know, is it on the IFAB page? No, not going to find it. It gets passed down to top referees from mentors at developmental assessments or in refereeing academies where they take the top referees. Maybe it's at a, a top tournament for state cup, president's cup, regionals. Do you know who goes to those things? The top 1%. The best of the best get invited to those types of events and get that type of individual coaching or mentoring or classes. The fact is, is that for 95 to 98% of referees, they never get this kind of training or mentoring. They're left to figure it out on their own. (laughs) And picture about how hard that is, right? Like, how do you figure that out? Like, do you determine if it's a yellow card or a red card by how loud the person who got fouled is, is, is yelling and screaming on the ground? Do you determine if it's a red card and a yellow card by which coach is yelling at you and how loudly they're yelling at you? And if they say it's a red card, it's a red card. Do you listen to, gosh forbid, the parents who do that? Huh? How do you know? We're going to take a quick break for words from our sponsor. It's better than an in-game water break. When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. Why, why, why do we make this part of the game a mystery? Why is this something that we make so difficult to understand and we concentrate the knowledge in such a few amount of people? I believe that if we shared this knowledge more openly, it would help fans, players, coaches, and commentators understand why we make the decisions that we do. And there would be more empathy and understanding and respect for the different things that we have to go through when we are making a call. There was a play today in the Manchester City Crystal Palace match where Edison came out uh, of his penalty area for a challenge. But it's in the very, very corner of the penalty area. Ball was going away from goal. It might have been like two defenders back covering And, you know, people are making up all these random reasons why it should be a red card. Oh, 
Well, he came out of his penalty area and made a tackle. It should have been a red card. It's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Come on. I mean, I recognize that there are, you know, that that we can't expect the spectators to be um, referees. I mean, I get that. Not everyone is a referee. Not everyone's read the laws of the game. But, you know, interestingly enough, when I watch baseball with people or with basketball with people or American football, I'm always pretty impressed at how knowledgeable those fans are. And they really take the time to explain the calls and the decisions that happen on the field uh, to uh, the rule book. Now, not everyone might agree with it, whatnot, um, but there's a lot more of that takes place. You know, what's a catch? What's not a catch? I know that's, that's a little bit of an inside joke because that's a bit of an issue these days in the NFL. But I think there's more knowledge shared that helps people understand the decisions that are made on the field. I mean, even again, and I think I might've said this previously on on a podcast, you know, why can't we have hand signals? Why can't we announce our decisions to the spectators or to the people watching at home? Why can't we explain what a call has been and why we've made a certain call? What considerations were used? I mean, I think that just goes to further drive a wedge between the referee and the general public. And it doesn't help us. It's not a good thing for referees at all to be making decisions that people cannot understand. It makes them upset and frustrated and it doesn't endear us. And not that we need to be loved by spectators and fans. I don't think we ever do, but I think our decisions do need to be understood and respected as to why we make the decisions that we do. I think that's really important. So now let's get back to, you know, the 98%. When a ref is just starting out, I recognize that we want them to just focus on the basics of arm mechanics and positioning. Like, I get it. (laughs) Like, there's got to be someplace you can start. There's only so much information that someone can take in uh, on, you know, the first day when they're learning to be a referee. You know, gosh, we send them to this online, you know, classes that, you know, give them some understanding of some of the basic laws. And then we quiz them on some of the most random things they'll never see ever in their life. But, you know, we want them to have basic understanding of signals. What's a direct free kick signal, an indirect free kick signal. You know, what's a, you know, ball out of play, what direction to throw the flag, things like that. But we never, ever, ever help them develop some ability or or some criteria to recognize fouls and how to evaluate them. They are left to wonder if they're even doing their jobs correct. In a normal organization, there would be countless videos standard operating procedures, quarterly reviews to ensure the job was done correctly with written feedback and documentation of, of, of progress or opportunities for improvement. You know, I know. And, and, and listen, I know <laughs> that, that currently there's no money. There's no, it doesn't seem to be any money at the state level to provide this type of training and feedback. But until there is, we're just going to continue to lose referees at an alarming rate. No one stays at a job if they feel like they aren't doing it well or they don't feel like they're supported. They don't. They leave. Additionally, here in the U.S., there is no possibility for progression or advancement for the 98% of referees who will not make it to regional for one reason or another. There's no progression at all. We are just a referee. That's it. 
Whether you've refereed for 10 years and you can referee adult competitive matches or, you know, U18, MLS Next, or ECNL, you are the same grade as someone who has started refing today. You're just a referee. That's it. That's it. It's insulting. All of our young refs who do this for a few years in high school will never progress. They'll never know if they have what it takes to move forward and advance to the next level. Because to make it to regional, right? To make it to regional ref, which is the next level up from referee, you have to do 25 adult competitive centers. 25 adult competitive 90-minute centers. You can't even do that as an 18-year-old. I mean, forget about it. You know, you're not going to be doing that until you're probably in your 20s before you could be on that road. So that's one of the considerations. Then you need to pay hundreds of dollars to have assessments, you know, three assessments. They're like $110 each or $120 each. You need to pay to get those assessments. You need to pass the regional fitness test, you know, which probably a young fit referee could do. But, you know, until you're probably 20, 21, 22 years old, you ain't making regional. It's just not really feasible or possible uh, to do that. So for most refs from the age of 13, when they start to the time they're 20, they will see no advancement at all. They're just a referee. And then if you're older like me, who can't travel to regional events due to family or job commitments, we will never get the recognition and training at those top events to be able to become you know, a top referee in the area or recognized as someone who has made progress at all. So why can't we be more open with the considerations of our best referees, recognizing that so few can make it to, to regional or to those regional events? Why can't we be more open? Why can't we train the general public? Why can't we educate the general public? Why can't we do a better job of educating those who need to understand the laws of the game and how to apply them? It is time for referees and mentors and leagues in general and the, and the refereeing organizations to open up, you know, open the kimono and bring other people in and be more open with considerations and explaining them. We've got to open up the communication channels, whether it's on the pitch or off the pitch, to bring other people in and be more inclusive. It is time for clubs. That's right. I'm calling out for clubs to invest resources in the referees who refs at their clubs. It does not cost much. I mean, the the letter I'm going to read to you from the mailbag today, you know, talks specifically about this exact thing. It is time for for clubs to invest in referees and referee development. If they want to have great referees on the pitch and people stay with it, it is time for us all to do more, to share our knowledge for the betterment of the game for everybody. All right, let's dig into the mailbag real quick. This one comes from Cody. I love this. I became a referee when I was about 14 and I did it through high school. I took about a 25-year break, okay? 25, so 25, 18, he's like my age. (laughs) He's in his late 40s, right? Okay, so uh, 25-year break. But he took the classes again with his 13-year-old daughter when she wanted to become a referee. I just got the chills. I almost feel like crying. (laughs) Love that. Just love that. Just love that. Oh my gosh. It has been a great experience working with her. 
our local club even started paying me as a fourth official to mentor and help all of the refs if needed. Now, they're paying him a nominal fee. It says in here $25 a day. So he's obviously not doing it for the money. There are usually four games going on at our local field, U6 to U8 matches. I just go back and forth checking in on the games and helping the kids out or filling in for games that they can't do. But honestly, I do it for free. A lot less problems this year with parents and coaches by having an adult there to help. He finishes it off by saying, your videos are so helpful and I appreciate all you do. Hey, Cody, I appreciate all you do. Now, this club is is paying this guy 25 bucks to go there. I have a good friend, Felix, who refs for um, a club here in Atlanta called Inner Atlanta, and they pay him, I believe, $20 an hour uh, in between the games that he's refing to be a mentor as well. And he's just absolutely phenomenal. I love seeing him work with the new referees out there. Um, but we, we need to start doing more of this. We need to start sharing the knowledge for these referees who are not getting to regionals or to President's Cup or something of nature. We're being way too stingy with the knowledge that these referees need to be able to develop and learn, are they doing it right? Are they not doing it right? Helping them with their foul recognition, helping them with their presence on the pitch, and the confidence to make the calls that they need to make to feel good about being a referee. No one sticks with a job for long if they don't feel that they're doing a good job or they're not loved and they're not appreciated and they're not invested in. So let's invest in our referees, and we will certainly see a positive return. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's pod. I firmly believe that being open with the considerations for everyone in order to address the ongoing referee crisis is critical. We have gone from 140,000 refs in 2020 in the United States to 100,000 in 2023. This trend will not reverse until we support and train our existing refs and help the general public understand why we make the decisions that we make. Please consider reviewing the podcast wherever you're listening to this. Apple, Spotify, someplace else, you give me five stars. Thank you so much. You have no idea how much that helps. The more reviews it gets, the further this message of love and support can go out across our country and across the world for our referees. I'd also ask you to support the channel on my store at refsneedlove2.com. Every dime you invest goes back into making this channel the best it can be. I wish you nothing but love and respect and hope that your next match is red card free.